This is Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Well over a million Americans are incarcerated, and a disproportionate number of them are black. The conditions they often live under are brutal, even deadly, and hidden. But incarceration scholar Andrea Armstrong says that bringing light to the problems is a critical step in solving them. The biases and the problems that we have on the outside, those don't just stop at the prison gate. They live there, too. Documenting the brutality of America's prisons. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Our carceral system is one way that America is truly exceptional. With more than one and a half million of our citizens behind bars, the United States is second only to China and the number of our own in prison. For black men, the numbers are even worse, with an estimated one of three African-American men spending some part of their lives under the control or supervision of the criminal justice system. The consequences of incarceration for individuals, families, and communities are devastating and little understood. Even the worst outcomes in prison, sickness, suicide, and other deaths are frequently overlooked because the victims aren't valued and the incidents aren't even documented. Correcting that is the chosen mission of Andrea Armstrong. She's a professor at Loyola University of New Orleans College of Law and the chair of the Prison and Jail Innovation Lab at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. She also recently won a MacArthur Fellowship, widely known as a Genius Award, for her work. And Andrea Armstrong joins us now. Congratulations and welcome to Award. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I haven't talked to that many geniuses. So this is a high point, <laughs> a high point in the podcast. What was the first thing you did when you found out that you were chosen for this honor? What does it mean to get that call, get that email, get that text message? I will say it is terrifying. <laughs> it allows you to dream bigger and deeper than you have ever dared to in the past. There's this amazing rush of, oh, we could build this and we could do this and we could do this. And it's just, it's awe-inspiring. And I'm really trying to be strategic and sit down and map it out because this is a real opportunity to move the needle. So a lot of people, they may or may not have heard of the MacArthur Genius Award But what does it do? Is it monetary? Like, what is the actual award for the vast majority of the unwashed out there who don't actually know what it is? It's really three things in my mind. So one is it is a legitimacy stamp for other actors out there in this space to say, this is somebody who has a track record, who does good work, and you can believe in what she's going to do. So that's one. Second is it really is a networking opportunity. So I got to spend time with the 19 other fellows and they are incredible. And just the ideas, there's a climatologist, there's an anthropologist, and I'm dreaming of all the ways that we can collaborate and do cool things together. And then the third, and the part that people mostly talk about and think about is the money. So for five years, you get a stipend that is designed with no restrictions uh, and no strings attached. It's just to help you create. So you've said there's so much more to a prison sentence than most Americans think about. What do you mean by that? 
think about the news stories, right? Somebody gets convicted of a crime and the whole societal debate is 10 years enough to pay for the crime that they were convicted of. But we don't talk about what the content of a single year is. And it is much more than time. It is much more than being separated from your family and your community. And that's the part that I really think is misunderstood. How does the impact of incarceration change depending on where you are in your life? We can even just think about the lost opportunities, right? So one of the people who died in the New Orleans jail, he had a big supervisor interview coming up that he was excited about after a period of being jobless and not having steady income. And he's in jail and because he is in jail, loses the opportunity for the interview, possibly has threats to his housing, to other types of commitments that he has. And then he also died in jail, paying the ultimate price for something that he hadn't even been convicted of yet. So the costs can be really extreme, particularly when we think about some of the examples, warrants, traffic tickets, right? Misdemeanor crimes where public safety isn't really at risk. How difficult is it to prove that racism is fueling the incarceration crisis in this country? How do you prove that to the skeptical or even just the uninformed? We can look at it from the very beginning. When we think about the resources that communities of color do not receive in comparison to the resources that majority group, white communities, in fact, receive. We think about the differentials and how we fund our schools, how we fund our libraries. All of that comes from property taxes. From there, deprived of different opportunities, of jobs, you see it play out in terms of policing strategies, where they deploy, how they police, what is criminalized, what is not criminalized. Then you can walk through the criminal court system, whether you are detained or not pre-trial, whether you have a public defender versus a privately resourced attorney, what you are charged with, the discretion of the DA to even adjust your charges or plead out. And then you are convicted and whether you get parole early or whether you are granted supervised release, like it is at every stage of the criminal legal system. The part that I think is misunderstood or at least less well-known is the ways in which race plays out simply in doing your time. And so we can think about healthcare outcomes while you're incarcerated. We can think about disciplinary decisions, when a guard is going to write you up and when he is not going to, and the range of behavior that you can be written up for, some of which is just an attitudinal type of thing, right? You had an attitude with me and so I'm going to write you up. Whether or not you have an attitude with me can be affected by our perceptions of race and the ways in which people are perceived to be more or less worthy. So I think you can point to every single part of it within prosecution and conviction and then release. But what we really need to think about is race as it occurs within a prison cell, because the biases and the problems that we have on the outside, those don't just stop at the prison gate. They live there too. We're going to take a short break and we come back more with MacArthur genius Andrea Armstrong about incarceration law. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the legal and social impact of mass incarceration with MacArthur genius Andrea Armstrong. 
Andre, you've visited prisons around the country as part of your research, but I want to focus for a moment on your work on the East Baton Rouge prison in Louisiana. How did you become involved there, and what did you find? It's actually a jail, even though it's named a prison. So it is designed for short-term stays, people being held pre-trial, meaning they are still going to court on their charges. During the protests surrounding the murder of Alton Sterling, people started getting arrested. And we had a group of volunteers who were working on the legal representation for those people and doing bond and bailing them out, etc. And one of my students was leading those efforts and literally called me and said, Armstrong, we're going to need a memo. And I was like, what? You're going to need a memo? Yeah, we're going to need a memo because the reports of the conditions that we're getting are really horrendous. And people feel this enormous guilt of leaving people behind on their criminal charges because they weren't arrested for the protest, right? So I'm getting bounded out, but I'm leaving behind these people. So that was my first engagement with that jail is writing up and analyzing these accounts. And that was the first report that I published with the Promise of Justice Initiative, which was looking at punished protesters and their experiences. I have a stereotype about prisons down south. From your work in East Baton Rouge, what are some things that in your time working there, you're like, this is something that the rest of America has to know about what's really going on here? Some of the accounts coming out of that facility are just horrendous, right? I think about David O'Quinn, who was bipolar and who was held in a restraint chair for such extended amounts of time that the wounds from the shackles got infected who, when he was released from the restraint chair, couldn't stand up and ultimately died from the embolism that developed while he was in that restraint chair. I think about when I was in that facility and I think about women and needing certain types of sanitary supplies once a month, as women do. And one of the officers who was walking with us was like, oh, we can't give it to them. And I was like, why not? There's a law that was passed. And he's like, just look in there. And they had lined the vents with them because it was so cold. Mm. They were freezing that they were using them to close the vents just in an attempt to stay warm. Because when you are incarcerated, you can't just go get a sweatshirt or a coat. You can't control the temperature. You have to sit in whatever they have given you at whatever temperature they have set. And so you have women who are trying to protect themselves and who then don't have the supplies that are needed for their normal monthly functions. It's just, it was so hard to see them shivering and sitting together. As a result of your work, you you started the Incarceration Transparency Project. What is that and what does the project do? The project basically wants to pierce the veil and help all of us, you, me, my neighbors, better understand what's happening in prisons and jails, because those are our prisons and jails, and they are our responsibility. So what does that look like? We've been collecting information about deaths that happen in custody. We don't know. We don't have a list in Louisiana, and most states don't have a list, by the way or a publicly available list of people who are dying while they're incarcerated. Remember, when we have the death penalty, we have elaborate procedures on whether or not the state is allowed to kill a person. 
And there are a lot of states that have decided, no, the state is never allowed to kill a person after they've been convicted for certain crimes. Elaborate legal procedures. You get an attorney, you have a hearing, a two-stage hearing. But all of these people who are dying, they're not getting hearings or we're not debating and discussing their value and their worth and the trauma that they have experienced and whether or not they should be sentenced to death. They just die through our neglect and sometimes our recklessness and intentional conduct. I have to ask, when you are finding out information about different kinds of prisons, as you said, sometimes the states hold it, sometimes they don't hold it, sometimes they share, sometimes they don't share the information. What are some of the justifications for blocking that information from the public? What do you hear from wards and state legislators as to why you don't have a record of how many people have died here? Why don't you have a record of pregnancies in prison? What's the justification for not holding that kind of information, let alone not sharing it? Some of the more less evil explanations are about resources. It takes a lot of resources to be able to create records, save records, organize records. And when we think about staffing in jails and prisons, they are having some of the same hiring issues that other industries are having right now. And so they'll say, we just don't have the personnel. Don't you want us to focus our time and resources on keeping people safe? Or do you want us to focus our resources on providing you with the information that you need? And I don't think that's really fair. I think that you can't blame the public for wanting to know how our tax dollars are being spent and what's being done in our name. Not only being done in our name, but being done to our neighbors, our children, our uncles and aunts. But that is one argument. When it comes to deaths in particular, they say this is protected health information. And to some extent, yeah, it, it, it is interesting when a warden suddenly stands up for the rights of an incarcerated person. Because, listen, lots of facilities will issue a periodic or episodic uh, press release when somebody dies. That's part of the problem is sometimes they'll do a press release and sometimes they won't. But in those press releases, they are very clear. They will submit the mugshot. They will provide a listing of the accused charges, not even proven charges. It's one of the reasons that we started our memorial project, which is trying to help families reclaim the narrative around their children and what happened to them and who their children were. The other end of the spectrum is wardens saying, we're protecting their privacy, and that's why we can't give you the information. But even then, there are ways to do this data work that does not uh, interfere with somebody's privacy. And I fully agree that incarcerated people aren't necessarily deserving of less privacy than you or me. They deserve the same levels of privacy. a short break when we come back more about documenting and fighting the effects of mass incarceration with MacArthur genius professor Andrea Armstrong. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with incarceration scholar Andrea Armstrong. She recently won a MacArthur Fellowship for her work. There's always this debate in America about improving the lives of people in prison. You say, hey, we shouldn't have prisoners who can't get air conditioning and can't get sanitary napkins, and they should have food that doesn't have roaches in it. And then people's responses are like, yeah, but they robbed people, and they took people's safety, or they killed people. What's so bad about them 
not living as well as some of the people who they victimized. And, and I say this because I don't think that response is always from mean-spirited people. But I do think, especially crime victims themselves, may say, hey, look, I can't sleep at night. I've had PTSD because this person clubbed me over the head and took my car. So I don't feel so bad if they have natty blankets. How do you respond to that sentiment from the public? So there's a couple different responses. First is, overwhelmingly, the people who are in prison have themselves been survivors of crime. Let's be really clear. It is not an us versus them situation. It is hurt people. That's who's in there. But the second part is to say, we really then need to have a conversation about what the limits of appropriate punishment should be. I don't think anyone would, with a straight face, say that you should be victimized while you're incarcerated, either physically assaulted, sexually assaulted, etc. That is never an appropriate punishment for the state to impose on another individual. You should not be denied the basic necessities of being a human being, which includes nutritious food, which includes access to sunlight, clean drinking water. The punishment at least what we say the punishment, is you are separated from community. Okay. That is in itself a very real punishment. You don't attend the graduation for your child. You don't get to be by your mom's bedside when she's struggling with something harmful that happened to her. That is a punishment that people feel deeply. But we don't need to subject them to torture, which is what I think happens in prisons and jails particularly when we talk about solitary confinement. It's interesting. You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation about the length of time, like how long a year really is out of somebody's life. I taught at a community college in North Carolina, and one of the programs at the community college was recently incarcerated people got to take uh, up to nine hours of free classes, right? So I was often teaching people who had done time. And I had a project where I asked people to write about their perfect day. And I didn't know who in the class had served and, and who didn't. But I remember one gentleman, he said his perfect day was watching TV at his sister's house, getting up from the couch, walking to the kitchen, getting a soda, and coming back to the TV and not having to fight. Mm-hmm. And it really highlighted the fact that in his experience, having spent time in jail, it's look, there was a fight to change the channel. Just going to get a soda and coming back to the same TV was not something that he had been able to experience in a long time. So I think sometimes we forget in our desire to punish people as a society that like it doesn't take much to to punish a human being. Is that something that you find that people still struggle with, that they think, throw them away for a year, and you don't realize a year is a lot heavier than just 365 days? It is. I think the time part is huge. But also, let's just think about health care. So if you get sick while you're incarcerated... You can't just go to a doctor. You can't just book your own appointment. You are fully and completely dependent on whichever healthcare they decide to provide for you. And so there are far too many instances where we have people not making their specialty appointments, meaning the prison has not transported them to the specialty appointment that the medical professionals all think that they need to do. And so the year takes on added weight because in that year, your disease could in fact get to a stage where it is no longer treatable. 
In the video message that accompanied your MacArthur announcement, you said, quote, there is joy in moving towards the ideals we think are important, unquote. A lot of your work doesn't seem to be joy-based. It's talking about failures of the legal system and systematic racism and human rights abuses. And I don't mean to say this in a glib way. I think sometimes words like self-care are overused. How do you do this work without becoming despondent? How do you do this work without becoming depressed? Because some of the most dedicated scholars I know who do human rights work, that stuff takes them out for a while. They, They can't continue past a certain point without completely detaching themselves from the work because of the emotional trauma and pain. So the work is heavy. I'm also uh, certified to audit facilities to document and devise solutions to prevent sexual abuse while incarcerated, right? So you end up interviewing a lot of assault survivors. And so whenever I'm in prisons and jails, I deliberately take time immediately after that visit. If I'm in a day, I need a full unscheduled day the next day in order to process and recover. That being said... I do think that there is incredible joy in this work. There is joy in seeing the humanity of someone else and in them seeing that you see them. There is joy in community work and conversations, in connecting with people who are concerned about the same things that you are. There is joy in connecting with families who all they want is to reclaim the memory of their loved one and to celebrate who their loved one was, right? That their loved one was an artist or their loved one was incredible at building or their loved one would take care of them or taught them how to fish. Hearing all of those stories, we lose so much, but there is still joy in remembrance. I am inspired and grateful to do this work with people who are incarcerated and their families. And we basically support one another in this. What is the main policy change that you would like to see in America's sort of prison system? And how can people listening now assist you in achieving that policy change? Yeah, so I do want to frame this and say this is the policy goal for the next couple of years. It is not the long-term vision because I have a different vision of how we live and interact Uh, with each other 20 years from now. But in the next couple years, what I want is eyes and accountability on every single space with bars. I want independent oversight of every single facility, right? We should have golden key access, the ability to come in and out as we please, access to records. And part of that is to simply know how the institutions are functioning in our name. We demand the same for our public schools. If we can do it for our public schools, why can't we do it for our prisons and jails? How could the public get involved in that process? So I think there's a couple things. One is to let people know that they're watching, right? So you can volunteer at your local jail. You can go in and teach a class on knitting. You can go in and teach a class for the high school equivalency degree. You could go in as a member of your faith and work with other faith members in that facility. There are lots of ways that we can enter and be present in these spaces, ways that are safe. So that's first. Second, I think it's asking questions during elections. Like in Louisiana, our sheriffs are popularly elected. We should ask them, right? So how do you plan on providing this information to the future and the public? 
What are the things that you were willing to set up? How many people have died in your facility during your tenure? Do you have solitary confinement? I have a gazillion questions. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think asking questions at the local level matters. But I do think that a lot of your questions today are really the conversations that we need to be having in our own communities with each other. What is the purpose of the jail and of the prison? And what are the things that we think they should be allowed to do? And what are the things that they should not be allowed to do? Because I think if people really knew what we were doing to each other, that we would do something different. Andrea Armstrong is a professor at Loyola University of New Orleans College of Law. She's also a recipient of the 2023 MacArthur Genius Grant. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. This was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Words.